Hello, hello. Hey up, what's up, what's good? Que cosa sucede? Ni hao, Puviet. Welcome to the Any Given Runway Show. I'm your host, Randall Carlton Green. Any Given Runway celebrates the exploration of new cultures by highlighting some of the most interesting, intellectual, and artistic people in the world. Everyone has a story. Each person a scholar. We have a terrific episode for today with an unforgettable guest, garden historian, writer, and World War II veteran, Christian Lamb, joins the show. Christian is one of my all-time favorite guests for her unmatched life, and we have to start the episode by wishing her a happy birthday as she turns 101 today on July 19th, her 101st birthday. She has lived an epic life, and we were extremely fortunate to have her on the show. Not many people would wait until their 80s to write a book, let alone four. But as a spry octogenarian, she wrote her first book, From the Ends of the Earth, Passionate Plant Collectors Remembered in a Cornish Garden. And she also burst into the next decade with several other books. She is a plant connoisseur, a plant expert, a plant collector. When she was 18 and was staying in France, she had her mind set on going to Oxford, where her sister already was, when one day she was surprised to receive a telegram from her father, Admiral Ronald Oldham, OBE, telling her to come home as war was imminent. Arriving home just as war was declared, Christine was among the first of the Wrens to join in World War II. After a stint at the Kensington Training Establishment and then HQ, she was promoted to leading Wren and moved to the Coalhouse Fort in Tilbury. In 1944, she was posted to Combined Operations AQ at Richmond Terrace Whitehall, and her new vital role was assisting creating actual maps of the planned D-Day landing. On today's conversation, Christine chats about her early travels growing up and her time spent in Malta. Christine also reflects on that telegram and what it was like serving in the war. Christine also shares with us those experiences in preparing for the D-Day landings. And finally, Christine and I chat about her travels. And She's been on 14 cruises to places off the beaten track, such as the cloud forest of Costa Rica, and she has traveled to Africa in pursuit of a lost plant. She has an insatiable spirit of adventure, but also has a highly inquisitive mind most of Christian's trips were for a distinct purpose, rather than just lying hedonistically on a deck chair in the sun. A tremendous individual. This was such an outstanding conversation. She has lived a full life and then some, and we are honored to have her on the show. Thrilled for you to meet her, one of the most exceptional guests we've had. Botanist, writer, World War II veteran, who helped in the preparation of the D-Day landings. Celebrating her 101st birthday today. So let's welcome Christine Lamb, and let's learn. You just have an, an incredible, incredible life. Your love of travel, it started at an early age and you spent many days in Malta. What do you remember about those years? And at the time, did you appreciate being out of England? Well, I was only about 10 when I, when I left England for the first time with my mother and our governess and my younger brother. My father had been appointed to um, captain of a, a cruiser in Malta. And so we were going out to join him where he had a house for us and everything all arranged. And um, do you want me to just describe what 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 it's like? Or yeah. Is that all right? Yeah, I would love to hear that. Good, okay. Well, anyway, on the boat, um, we, we we went through the Bay of Biscay, of course, and the weather was absolutely terrible. And I remember only too well how the only people who had any meals were my sister and I. We had meals, and we played around all day. That Everybody else was being seasick. So we had a lovely time on the boat. Yeah. And then when we got to Malta, um, we, 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 we had a house there and we had, um, 
um, was, everything was terribly cheap there. Mm. It was amazing. I mean, we had several servants living in, and we had a, a chauffeur, though he did have bare feet. But um, I know my sister and I were given, we went, had riding lessons every uh, early in the morning when it wasn't hot. And um, we went out to the Marga Club, which was a place for the polo club. And there we had lessons in riding. And I simply loved that. And my sister and I had this wonderful lessons. And in the end, I discovered that I was I actually was was riding on David Niven's polo pony. He he had it later on, of course, because he was out there just as an ordinary soldier. He wasn't a film star at that time, but you'd never heard of him anyway. That's about all I can remember from Malta. Well, of course, I I have all sorts of other memories, like we had dancing lessons and and um, lessons with our governess and all that sort of thing. And, of course, there was a wonderful swimming and diving in, in the sea just nearby. There's a lovely blue, blue sea. It was warm and everything. It's lovely. Wow. I'm imagining it right now. I'm picturing it. At 18 years old, you were staying in France when you received an important telegram from your father. What was that telegram and what happened next? Well, I can't remember exactly what it said, but it ordered me home because war was about to begin. And I, so I, I packed up my, my stuff and, and went to follow Dieppe where I met my mother who was on her way back from the south of France with our younger, uh, my younger brother. And we went across in the, almost the last ferry across the, the, the channel. And then, um, we went up to stay with my grandmother who was lived in Spean Bridge, which is near Fort William in the highlands of Scotland. Mm. There we decided, I was deciding what I was to do next because I had been intending to go to Oxford. But, um, and I had to do another exam. So I did the exam and passed it. And, and then I realized that I couldn't possibly go to Oxford. Oxford would have to wait. We'd have to do my, get, do my bit, as we called it, um, to, for, to help towards the war effort. Yeah. So that was at that point that I decided, first of all, to be a nurse. And then when I'd done my sort of practicing, I realized I didn't like being a nurse at all. So after that, I decided that I heard the Wrens existed, Women's Royal Naval Service, and I decided to join that because my father was an admiral anyway. And so it's a natural thing to do, I suppose. And um, my, my grandmother, who was um, um, lived up in the highlands where I was staying, she got her chauffeur to give me driving lessons, which was useful for the future, and also we played a lot of bridge, which was fun, and um, I sort of learned bridge, which I enjoy very much, and found it's the only civilized game, which is lovely, and um, also um, the, um, the, the the chief of the Wrens, the chief Wren officer, who had been just old enough to serve as a Wren at the end of the First World War, she was appointed to direct director of the new Wrens, which was starting up at the beginning of the war to employ um, women in the Navy. And um, her brother was a friend of my grandmother's who lived up in Scotland. It's called Colonel Norton. And he, um, I, I, we would play bridge with him. And I, so I asked him to give me a reference for joining the Wrens. So he, he would know, his sister would notice probably. So that was quite amusing. And I then I went down to have an interview with the Wrens. And um, they offered me a job immediately there on the spot. 
um, in headquarters, which is in just by Trafalgar Square. But I didn't really want a job like that. I wanted to be in, in a port where there were lots of ships and things. That's what I joined the Navy for, not with a lot of middle-aged old bags that I didn't fancy working with. Anyway, she was very nice, and, and then she said, well, I could go to the training place instead. So I went to the training place instead, which was in Kensington, and um, I found there that it was um, awful. I, I, they were trying to teach me touch typing, which I was no good at, and um, I was always late for everything, and I kept on being punished to me to scrub the floor, and that sort of thing is a punishment. And so I saw, I met this rather nice red officer who'd offered me a job at headquarters quite by chance one day, and I asked her if the job was still going, and she said, oh yes. So I was moved immediately to that job at headquarters after all, so that was slightly better. Wow. And what else I could tell you? While serving with the Wrens, you were involved in the planning of the D-Day landings. So what type of work did you do, and what are your clearest memories of that experience? Well, I, I was actually, it was, it was the last thing I did was the one with the planning on the D-Day. The first thing I did was a degaussing station mm. in um, the Thames. Would you like to hear about that? Oh, yes, I would definitely love to. Well, I was appointed... Um, I'm forgetting, a degaussing officer in charge or something, and there was this place at Coalhouse Fort, East Tilbury, at the mouth of the Thames, and um, it was being designed for a range which was to be laid over the mouth of the river on the river bed, and every ship came in and went out had to be measured for its magnetic emission. So that it, there were, the Germans were dropping by parachute and um, magnetic mines in the in the Thames, in fact, in all the rivers around England, but they started with the Thames. So this was the first one of, of the degaussing range, and I was age 20 in charge of it. Luckily, I didn't have to do anything technical, because they had scientific officers who did the difficult part. I just had to set it up and, and look after my wrens, and, and uh, I, was, I was promoted to leading wrens. So that was very exciting for me. But um, it was quite an interesting job. And, um, well, what else? Well, yes, we lived in a, in a sort of um, in a farmhouse with a, a rather disagreeable man looking after us. And we never had enough to eat or we were always cold. But um, it was quite an interesting job, which I enjoyed very much. Um, after that, um, then, then, then I was promoted to third officer, and to go on to be an officer, you had to do an officer's training course, which was at Greenwich, uh, just further up the river, the Thames, so I went there for a month or so, and there I had um, sort of lessons on how to behave, behave as an officer, I didn't know already, and that was quite interesting, and we had all our meals in this beautiful painted hall, which was a wonderful part of, of Greenwich Palace. There was very, very much of a change after the rather gloomy, nasty place we were living in, East Tilbury. Um, what else should I tell you about? Um, well, then, at the beginning of the war, of course, there was the Phony War, which was called the Phony War because nothing really happened. Mm. This was all 1939, I, was, I joined. And so for that time, until about the middle of the next year, nothing much happened. 
But after that, it, they began to come and fight over and try to, to get into fight over all, all parts of London and different parts of England. And um, we used to watch the dog fights overhead from watching them fighting. You know, the Hurricanes and the Spitfires and the Messerschmitts all having frightful battles overhead. It's really quite alarming, but somehow he didn't seem to mind. And um, we used to watch them in our lunch hour. We also used to have, across the Trafalgar Square, where there was a national gallery. And there they had sometimes, um, every day in fact, the most wonderful concerts, which were um, people like Mara Hess and um, um, Irene Shara had come over from Germany and escaped their country. And so they were doing these lovely concerts. And so I was able to get permission for our team of wrens to um, have our, our ticket, which we were given a lunch ticket, which was worth one and threepence, I think. One shilling and threepence. It wasn't very much. Anyway, they allowed us to have coffee and sandwiches and go to these lovely concerts. So that was very good. Then after that um, period of um, sort of the bombings going on, then we hit the, we, we shot down too many of them, and at that time they decided not to come and bomb us by day anymore. They'd be only bomb us by night. So that's when the blitz began. And we were usually sent home every day from the office to our digs, our place where we lived in the Willery. Where we lived, we had to go back usually by bus. And sometimes we would go to the cinema on the way back and sometimes to a theatre or something like that. It was all rather jolly to be able to do that. And um, lots of places were bombed and it was really rather unpleasant indeed. My great friend's school friend was killed um, near Harrods. She was helping at a canteen and she was killed outright. So that was a bit of a shock. But after that, we, we, uh, we just went on doing that until, um, what happened after? Oh, well, I, by this time I got my commission. So that meant I could have my tricorn hat, which I was keen on. <laughs> and this, I thought, um, the, 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 I didn't realize when I joined the Wrens that there would be officers and ratings. I just thought they'd be ordinary Wrens. And of course, unless you had a, a commission, you, you didn't have the, the tricorn hat. So anyway, I got my commission. So then I was able to wear my beautiful tricorn hat, which I enjoyed. And then I was sent down to Plymouth, where I was in the plotting room, where we had the, the operations room, where I ran the plot. And of course, I didn't know how to do it. I had to be sort of taught as, as I went along, really. It was a sort of fingers-crossed arrangement. We didn't have any training or anything like that. Just had to pick it up as you went along. And uh, you so, mentioned that uh, the D-Day was one of the last things that you were part of. Yeah, then after that, um, there, well, several things happened before that. But okay. at D-Day, my particular job was of interest, I suppose, because um, I was working at that time in, in Whitehall, opposite the Horse Guards Parade, which is just off Trafalgar Square, actually. But it was the sort of... Um, headquarters of the planning for the invasion of France. 
and um, Lord Mountbatten was the head band there. But Churchill used to often come over, and so we would see him sometimes. I had a little office in the basement entirely to myself, and my job was to map, draw maps, really, of each compass, um, what do you have, compass bearings, that's what you have, mm. compass bearings, and I had to, there were five different landing places on the Normandy coast. Three of them, two of them were for, for, for English people, two of them were for, uh, for Americans, and one was Canadian. And they all had to land, and they all had special places to, to, to start the invading from. And I, my job was to draw a map on each compass bearing from the actual place that they had to stop and start their invasion. I'm not explaining this very well, but it's rather difficult to explain. But my, my, all around my office, I had huge, enormous, large-scale maps of France and, and, and um, Normandy, which is where the landings took place. And at the same time, we were in terribly anxious to even more secret than usual because we were planning to pretend to be using the Pas de Calais place to invade and we wanted the Germans to think that's where we were going to land. We were secretly, we were planning to, to invade in the coast of Normandy and they didn't, of course, luckily, we managed to persuade them and they moved quite a lot of their troops towards the Pas de Calais. So we were quite clever to have deceived them, I think, in that. But my job was to do these maps, and of course I had to be very accurate and careful, and it was very interesting. It's really about all, I suppose. That experience is documented in one of your books, and you have written four books since becoming 80, an amazing accomplishment. I'm curious, do you enjoy the writing process? And then can you talk about the inspiration behind each book? Well, actually, and the only reason I wrote a book, really, was it's quite a long story, but I have to tell it to you, to you to understand. I, when I got to, after, um, when I was married and we had three children, my husband retired from the Navy. He'd been in the Navy, and he had a very exciting war as well. Anyway, he retired from the Navy, and we moved down to Cornwall, where he got a job as harbour master of a little port called Parr. Our children were mostly at boarding school by this time, and so I didn't have anything much to do. But I found a neighbor who had a wonderful old garden, about 200 years old, and she had inherited, inherited it from her, her family, and she was trying to restore it. She'd also been away during the war, so we were friends anyway. And so I spent 20 years helping her restore this wonderful old garden which was full of unusual plants that our ancestors had collected from all over the world. And so we spent a lot of time re-identifying um, what the plants were, sending them up to Kew for identification and getting them back again and then making sure they had labels on for the future. So I spent, as I say, 20 years there, which was an amazing experience. Then my friend who owned it died, and I actually then had to give up going to this wonderful garden. So I decided to rearrange my own garden in my house in Cornwall. And um, I cleared out all the remains of the previous owner's garden plants and started 
to replant from the, what I had learnt in this wonderful old garden and filled my garden with what I called a living plant museum. The planting of the plants was quite a performance and I greatly enjoyed myself for 10 years doing that. And then after that, I suddenly thought, I think I'll write a book about it. I'd never written a book before, so I started to write a book and I had a, a neighbour who was an expert on sort of things like computers and laptops and things. And he taught me how to use a sort of laptop, which was um, quite an experience. And so I was then able to write my book on this, which was much more convenient than writing it by hand. And he was a very nice friend, really. And after a bit, he said, I don't really want to be paid for doing this anymore. I'm rather enjoying it. So I said, well, what do you drink? <laughs> so he told me he drank whatever it was. I forget now. And I keep him in drink now ever since. <laughs> That's my type of writer right there. <laughs> when it comes to plant collecting, you've got many elaborate and specific plants. So are there certain plants in which you were the most proud? And are there certain ones that you are continuing to hunt for? Yes, I suppose, I suppose camellias are the thing that I really like particularly. The, the garden where I was working for those 20 years had a special collection of camellias. And so I decided to grow a lot of those to sort of surround my garden with hedges. So I could see that and the camellias are particularly good for that sort of thing. They have wonderful evergreen leaves all year round. And they have many different, about 20,000 at least, different kinds of, of camellia. So you can have some that make a very good hedge, upright ones, or sort of rather flowing ones. And they really are the most um, accommodating plants to use for that sort of thing. So I did that a lot. And um, I also had a rather um, camellia mania. I had a mania for a particular plant called an echium wild pretty eye, which was rather a splendid plant as well. And it's on the, I have the front of my book. Um, it is quite difficult to grow, and I tried it several times, um, making a little tent for it so it would be um, all right in the winter. And eventually I got it to flower. But, um, and so I, it flowered just in time for the book, actually, so I could photograph it and put it on the front page. But it was a very pretty little flower and very in, enjoyable to, to grow. I found a lot of plants were particularly good. And I liked climbers, too. I had a most beautiful um, passion flower called Passiflora exoniensis, and that I grew in my greenhouse, and it covered the ceiling with these brilliant flowers, these beautiful red flowers, bigger than any other passion flower. They were very good. Another plant that I looked for when I was going on my travels, I went on 14 different cruises after John died as well, of course. That was, um, I suppose, after, not, 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 I think I wasn't quite as old as 80 when I started going on cruises, but um, I, I just went on cruises to look for plants to see how these particular plants that were growing in my friend's garden how, how they looked in their native habitat. So I used to go on these cruises just particularly to look for a plant. It was quite naked, quite interesting. Traveling since then has become a big love of yours, especially the voyages at sea. What is it that you enjoy most about cruises? 
And which locations are your favorite? Well, I suppose South America has a tremendous amount of interest in it. It has the whole of the west coast of South America. Is, is, um, it has all sorts of climates. They're quite cold at the bottom where you have Cape Horn. And then you come up the coast of Argentina, Argentina and then go on to Peru and I forget the name of the whole places up there, but I, I very much enjoyed one cruise which took us all the way up the coast there. And not, not only plants there, but there was a place called Arica, which was very interesting because when you got there, you walked around the town and they had a cathedral which had been, they had an earthquake and, and their cathedral had, had, um, disappeared really. So they had a new cathedral, and it was it was designed for them by Dr. Eiffel of the Eiffel Tower in Paris. It was actually sent there in little in little um, sort of it was it was what you might call um, I'm trying to think what they called it. Um, it's a special kind of um, way they used to send buildings in little departments. They were called boxes or something. Um, I can't think what they were called. But um, anyway, there's something like 2,000 boxes. Um, they were the design of the cathedral, and they were sent out by ship, and then they had to be taken up the whole coast by llamas and mules. And they weren't allowed to weigh more than, I think, 300 weight was the most any parcel could be. Now, otherwise, the, the mules and the llamas would start spitting and biting. And so they had to mind how small and how big the parcels were. So when they got to Arica, then they assembled their millions of different boxes. I think about 2,000 little boxes of plants. And, I mean, boxes of building. I'm talking an awful lot of rubbish, I'm afraid. Oh, I love <laughs> anyway, it. I love it. <laughs> anyway, when they got to Arica, they would assemble the cathedral, and so that had happened, and there it was, this beautiful cathedral there, and, and that was the, uh, sort of in the rough direction of Peru. There another wonderful thing there that I had never expected to see was what they call the Nazca Lines. Oh, I don't yeah. know whether you, yeah. you know about them. Oh, they're, they're wonderful. They're, they're absolutely amazing. They have pictures which are sort of drawn on the ground and they are absolutely enormous. Um, something like they have a monkey which was a hundred meters across. Yeah. A spider mm. was fifty meters across and a pelican was two hundred and eighty five meters across. These were on the ground and you imagine that two hundred years ago, they were much longer ago than that. Nobody could possibly have had an aeroplane. How on earth did they, why on earth did they make these things and how did they ever see them? Yeah. Nobody's ever been able to explain it. It's quite extraordinary. They are. In fact, recently they discovered a new one. They discovered a new cat that was drawn as well. Really? Yeah, yeah. We had, um, the, our crews arranged for small aeroplanes that took about three of us at a time to fly over these, uh, these drawings so that you could see them. Quite extraordinary. Very much so. I'm, I'm curious, and I know a lot of my listeners are curious, how is life at 100? 
You're celebrating your 101st birthday this July, so how is life? Uh, well, I was just thinking the other day, um, I don't feel as if I was 100 at all, really. I always found that I was terribly, I remember, I remember one day waking up and thinking, gosh, I'm 80, I can't believe it. <laughs> so I was always so busy, and I like, really like being busy. Um, I like doing things, and so whenever I'm unoccupied, I have to think of something new to do. So I've taken up painting recently as well. And I'm also writing several more books, which I quite enjoy doing. They then, then may never be published, but I just write them for the fun of writing them. And, and I like looking, researching and looking things up. So I really always have something, I must have something to do. Also, I'm, I'm because I'm a bit of a, a wreck physically, I make myself go for a walk every day. And I make myself do the stairs twice every day. <laughs> and I have a lot of exercises to do as well. This is all keeps me sort of going and keeps me busy. So I suppose that's all, all I can say about being 100. Your life has been spent so much on the water, and I know with the naval background. How has that naval discipline impacted your life even after you finished serving? How did it continue to impact your life? Well, I think, I was thinking the other day about that, and, and I, I think really the discipline side of it, I never ever thought of as such. But looking back at my life generally, I suppose I do stick to the rules rather. And my my exercises and things, I, I force myself to do it because I think that it's good for me and allowable to keep me fitter than I would otherwise be. And so it's a sort of mental discipline which probably comes from one's background. I really don't know. I mean, I don't do anything very special. It's just that I... I feel obliged to do something um, to keep myself going. What are you looking forward to? I know you're working on a couple books. What are some of your future plans you have for this year? Well, I don't have much of a plan. As you can imagine, as I expect to be dead before long. But um, I'm not looking forward to being dead. I just um, hope to arrange it so that it happens overnight or something. But I'm, I, I don't look forward to being you know, sort of in a in a home dribbling. That's not my scene at all. So I, I really don't know um, what I'm looking forward to. Well, I'm looking forward to the publishing of my book, which is coming out quite soon. And, um, and also I've got quite a lot of engagements for sort of um, interviews, rather like this in a way, except that I prefer it when it includes lunch or something, something slightly jolly other than a telephone call. Well, I will make it a point that when I return to London, that I, I bring you lunch. <laughs> okay. Do you still practice speaking French? Oh, yes. Well, I, I, I must admit, I'm not very fluent anymore, but after a glass or two of champagne, it improves. <laughs> well, there it is. I will bring a, a bottle of champagne just so I can hear you speak French. Okay. If I'm... <laughs> That'll be good. <laughs> this was this was wonderful. I am just ex incredibly thankful to to chatting with you today. I was really looking forward to it, and I love I love the title. I love the title of your book. I only joined for the hat. I think that's a brilliant title for a book. Yes, it was quite funny. My publisher and I were talking one day, and I just said to him, "You know, we only joined for the hat." <laughs> we both immediately thought that's the title. <laughs> it's a it's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant title. 
And I know my mom, she lives out here in Arizona, and she collects, she collects cactus. What did you say she collects? She collects cactus for plants, so like desert yeah. plants. Yeah, cactus. So when I, I don't think cactus is like England very much. <laughs> I don't, no. Not, not, it's, it's not warm enough. <laughs> no, no, they're not. Well, wonderful. I, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but thank you. Thank you so much for today. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you, Miss Lamb. Okay, goodbye. Bye. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. That was unforgettable. For more information and pick up one of her fabulous books, visit christianelam.co.uk. My new book, Curiosity, is currently available on Amazon. Curiosity celebrates the knowledge that strangers have to offer. Everyone has unique expertise and endless wisdom awaits the perpetually curious. Featuring 200 episodes from the Any Given Runway Show, Curiosity explores the diverse lives of athletes, adventurers, and performers. From daring voyages across the Atlantic to unforgettable performances in the West End, Curiosity celebrates the sophisticated thing we call life. Everyone has a story. Each person is a scholar. Thank you for listening. Fill up that passport. I'll see you on the road. Adiento. Randall has become like, you know, New York's favorite son.